This evening we are picking up in 2 Kings. This is our spring evening sermon series, Faithful Kings. We're looking at the lives of Hezekiah and then Josiah. We're still looking at Hezekiah this week and we'll be in 2 Kings 19, looking at verses 20 through 37. If you're using a Bible from the Pirac, you could find this evening's passage on page 326. Before I read our passage for us, let me remind you of the context and where we are in the life of Hezekiah. Hezekiah is a righteous king. Uh, He is a David-like king there in Judah in the southern kingdom. Uh, We see in chapter 18, verse 13, that these events occur in the 14th year of Hezekiah's reign probably around 701 B.C. The Assyrian army has surrounded Jerusalem. Now, on their way to Jerusalem, uh, the Assyrian records claim to have captured over 200,000 people there in Judah. They claim to have conquered 46 strong-walled cities and many more small villages. And there in the Assyrian record, uh, Sennacherib, their king, says this, I have the rebel Hezekiah shut up in Jerusalem, his royal capital, like a bird in a cage. That's the situation here in 2 Kings 19. Sennacherib, the king, has sent his messengers, particularly one called the Rabshakeh, And he arrives there in Jerusalem at the gates, and he taunts Hezekiah, but he makes a big mistake. Big mistake, huge mistake. He taunts Hezekiah's God. So, previously in our chapter, Hezekiah has sent for the prophet Isaiah, and Hezekiah has offered his prayer to the Lord. And what we're about to read In verses 20 through 34, we have the words of Isaiah to Sennacherib and to Hezekiah. Verses 20 through 28, particularly aimed towards the king of Assyria. And then 29 through 34, aimed to the king of Judah, Hezekiah. And then in verses 35 through 37, we have a report in which we learn the fate of the Assyrian army and the fate of their king. Before I read our passage this evening, would you please join me in prayer? Our Heavenly Father, this is your word. We ask that you would speak to us this evening. We ask that you would give us understanding that we might rightly behold your glory and your goodness. Give us faith, build us up, May it be a convicting word and a comforting word. You know our need. Please give us your son as we come to receive your word tonight. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. Hear the word of God from 2 Kings chapter 19, beginning in verse 20 through the end of the chapter. 
Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Your prayer to me about Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard. This is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning him. She despises you. She scorns you. The virgin daughter of Zion. She wags her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. Whom have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? Against the Holy One of Israel. By your messengers you have mocked the Lord. You have said, with my many chariots, I've gone up the heights of the mountains to the far recesses of Lebanon. I've felled its tallest cedars, its choicest cypresses. I entered into its farthest lodging place, its most fruitful forest. I dug wells and drank foreign waters. I dried up with the sole of my foot all the streams of Egypt. Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old what now I bring to pass, that you should turn fortified cities into heaps of ruin, while their inhabitants are shorn of strength, are dismayed and confounded, and have become like the plants of the field, like tender grass, like grass on the housetops, blighted before it is grown. But I know you're sitting down, you're going out, you're coming in, and you're raging against me. Because you have raged against me, and your complacency has come into my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth. Now I will turn you back on the way by which you came. And this shall be a sign for you. This year, eat what grows of itself, and in the second year, what springs of the same. Then in the third, sow and reap and plant vineyards and eat their fruit. And the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, and out of Mount Zion a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord will do this. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, He shall not come into the city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return. And he shall not come into the city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And that night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived in Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, Adremelech, and Sherezar, his sons, struck him down with the sword and escaped into the land of Ararat. And Esarhaddon, his son, reigned in his place. Amen. And that ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he write its eternal truth on all our hearts. The Westminster Shorter Catechism in question number seven explains that the decrees of God are his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory he hath foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. Question eight. 
explains that God executes his decrees in works of creation and providence. Question 11, God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. Here is a story that illustrates God's decree. His purpose in governing all the actions of all his creatures and all of history. Everything that takes place is for his purpose. The Lord explicitly tells King Sennacherib through, uh, through the prophet Isaiah. Look back at verse 25. Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned it from days of old, what I now bring to pass. It's quite a claim. But here is a passage that holds up the decree of God, God's providence. The Apostle Paul, in the book of Romans, as he is writing about the decree of God, as he's writing about predestination, here's a predestination passage for us. Uh, I like the, the words that he gives us as we're thinking about this. He says in Romans chapter 11, verse 22, when he's considering why is it that God ordained that not all Jews and many Jews would reject the Messiah and that God ordained that Gentiles would be grafted in through their rejecting the Messiah. The Apostle Paul in Romans eleven twenty-two says, note the kindness and the severity of God. And here in this passage, we can do the same. Tonight I want us to consider the kindness and the severity of God. God's kindness to Hezekiah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. God's severity towards the Assyrian army and King Sennacherib. Begin with the kindness, and so we look at verse 20. Look back there with me. Keep your Bibles open there in 2 Kings 19. Throughout this section of this chapter, I think we see God's kindness in three ways put on displayed for us. The first is one that we might skip over quickly, but I want to remind us, I want us to think about just for a moment. Verse 20, Hezekiah has cried out to the Lord. He has sought the word of the Lord through the prophet Isaiah. And what does Isaiah begin with? Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, your prayer to me about Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard. This is the first display of God's kindness. He is the hearing God. Oftentimes we think of prayer as a checklist, a duty, some sort of performance. It's something that Christians do because it's a Christian thing to do. And here it reminds us we pray because the God we serve is a hearing God. So what's remarkable in this, now we see something in play. God has affirmed that everything that is occurring is occurring according to his providence, according to his predestination, according to his plan. So we learn that 
the God of the eternal decree, includes the prayers of his people and his hearing their prayers and answering their prayers, working out his eternal purpose in human history. The God of providence is the God who hears, and his decree includes the prayers of his people. Then we see another kindness. So turn the page, maybe in your Bible, in mine it is on the next page, verses 29 through 31. The inhabitants of Jerusalem have heard of many of their countrymen and probably some of their relatives who live outside the walls of the city. They've heard that they've been captured. They've heard that there has been at least 46 of their strong-walled cities that have been taken and countless numbers of villages that the Assyrian army has already taken over and conquered. Here's a people that is greatly discouraged. They are filled with fear. And as God answers Hezekiah's prayer on their behalf, God gives Hezekiah a sign. It is a kindness of the Lord. He doesn't just say that I heard your prayers. He says, and here's a sign that I've heard your prayers. So look back at verse 29. He tells them, and this shall be a sign for you. This year, eat what grows of itself. And in the second year, what springs of the same. Then in the third year, sow and reap and plant vineyards and eat their fruit. And then he goes on, the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. He's saying there will be survivors and the people of God will flourish again. And so he gives them a sign. It's an agricultural sign. So in times of war, everything is disrupted, isn't it? And so you can imagine that now as Assyria has been descending towards Jerusalem, that the normal cycle that takes place of planting and harvesting has been greatly disrupted. And while we don't know exactly how many years and months this descent has been taking place, it is, we can be certain that for those inside the walls of Jerusalem, they've been cut off from the normal production of, of wheat. And so the Lord says, here's your sign. There's going to be a harvest that comes up. It's going to provide for you within the walls. And if you miss the, the sowing season, don't worry. There'll be a harvest next year. And then in the following year, you'll return to the normal process of sowing and reaping. You can be certain of it. God is going to discourage people and says, I'm going to provide for your needs. And in my providing for your needs, I want you to know that out of the darkest situations, I can still bring abundance. I can provide for the needs of my people. But then what does he say there of the remnant? That the remnant will bear fruit. They will take root downward. It is a sign that he is not done with his people and that if he could provide crops for them, then also he can provide life and vitality going forward. It's a kindness. It's a sign for their encouragement. When there's another kindness there in verses 32 to 34, that it is 
a promise that he will defend them against this mighty force that is waiting for them, waiting to siege the city. So look back at verses 32 through 33. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into the city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return, and he, he shall not come into the city, declares the Lord. Not only does it give him a sign, but he promises their full defense that no weapon formed against them will prosper. That he will not even allow it to come to a battle, but that there would be no battle that the king of Assyria would be sent back by the way he came. That not one arrow will go over the wall. That one attempt to breach the wall will not be successful. It is a wonderful promise. It is an answer to their fears. And these are not unfounded fears. These are reasonable fears that they would be terrified until they look to God. And what does God tell them? He says, this is my will that I would provide and protect for you. It is his desire to do this. And he expresses it explicitly in verse 31. Look back. For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, and out of the Mount Zion a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord will do this. He's telling Hezekiah, this is what I want to do for you. This is amazing. There's this, this phrase, the zeal of the Lord will do this, is only used one other place in Scripture. It's in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7, speaking about the sending of the coming Messiah. That God will send a Messiah, and it is his, he is zealous to send a Savior and deliver. He is committing himself to his people, and he's saying, I am a God who is for you. He's saying, don't look at the army surrounding you. Remind you that I am a God who is for you. And he does it again in verse 34. He says, for I will defend this city to save it. He does so for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. He's saying, I will receive glory and defending you, my people, I will receive glory as the promise-keeping God. And it's a simple point that when Hezekiah calls out to the Lord, he doesn't convince the Lord to get on his side. God is on his side. This is Romans 8, 31-32 territory. Dear believers, those who are trusting in Jesus for your salvation, those who are in the family of God, God is for you. You can be certain of this. You can be certain of this because he has gone so far as to give his son for you. And if he's willing to give his son for you, Romans 8, 31, 32 argues with us, then He'll provide all things. God is for you. 
Now you may say, I want to believe that, but there are times where I have cried out to God and I feel like He didn't hear. There are times in desperation when I felt like my desperate cries fell on deaf ears and I did not receive the answer that I was seeking. God is for you and when He doesn't answer the way that we think we need Him to answer, He is still for us. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 12. The Apostle Paul in verses 7 through 10, he talks about how he has a thorn in his flesh. It's, it's, it's an interesting connection to this passage in this way that the Apostle identifies this thorn in the flesh as a messenger of Satan. And here, Sennacherib has sent his messenger with a taunt against God and his people. And here the apostle says, there's been a messenger and he's thwarting me. But what does Paul say? As I prayed to God three times about this. And the Lord did not remove it. Instead said, my grace is sufficient for you. And my power is made perfect weakness. God in his kindness sometimes withholds the answer that we think we need. Because he knows the end from the beginning. He knows what will be for our salvation and what will be for our sanctification better than we can comprehend. So there are times when we cry out to him. He does hear. But he will not answer according to what we think we need, but according to what is best. We can trust that. That he is for us. That all things are truly working together for your good. And so we can learn from Hezekiah that we bring our desperate pleas to the Lord. He is kind. He hears. And He is working. He is disposing. He is allowing. He is bringing. He is removing. He is taking. He is giving. All things for our good. His glory is the kindness of the Lord. His grace is is sufficient, dear brother and sister. Now let us consider, consider the severity of the Lord here in this passage. Let's look back at verses 22 through 28 first. Here, Sennacherib's messenger has taunted God and his people, and now the God of all kindness and goodness and righteousness and holiness turns a taunt against the enemy of his people. There's something of a, an oracle, a taunting oracle, or a taunt song that the Lord returns to Sennacherib. Verse 22, Sennacherib's sin is identified. Whom have you mocked and reviled? 
against whom have you raised your voice and lifted up your eyes to the heights? Against the Holy One of Israel. Now this is coming from the words, uh, these words are on the mouth of Isaiah. It is God's word to Sennacherib. The Holy One of Israel is a special designation by Isaiah. Remember, Isaiah being the one who saw the Lord on his throne, who heard the seraphim singing, holy, holy, holy. And that's so ingrained in Isaiah, and he's bringing that up again here and saying, do you think you can mock the Holy One of Israel? You think by your messengers, verse 23, you can do this? And then it goes on to there say, this is, we get a, a recounting of, of what this mocking is. And verses 22 and 23 and following. Sennacherib has claimed to go up to the heights of the mountain, to the far recesses of Lebanon. I felled its tallest cedars, its choicest cypress. I'd entered into its farthest lodging place, its most fruitful forest. I dug wells and drank foreign waters, and I dried up with the sole of my foot all the streams of Egypt. And it's hyperbole, representing what Sennacherib claimed to accomplish. The idea that you could take chariots up to the highest mountains. And while you're up there, then you could take down the tallest trees. And then you had the power then to change the way tributaries and streams and waters in Egypt flowed. Sennacherib has thought of himself as a god. In verse 22, when he, the language of him going up on the heights, as if he claimed to saying, I've come to the height and I've looked God in the eye. And then I've demonstrated my godlikeness. And God will not take his arrogance any longer. So how does he address his arrogance? Well, it was there in verse 25, where he says, the only reason you did any of this, the only reason that you destroyed cities is because I allowed it, I ordained it, I planned it. He's telling the king, yes, you wiped out entire villages. Yes, you captured many. And I was using you as my rod of discipline against the nations and against my very own people. But how dare you stand and think that you are a god? How dare you stand in a place that only I inhabit? And so... The God of the Bible tells him, I know you're sitting down. I know you're going out. Verse 27, you're coming in and you're raging against me. It says, now my crosshairs are set on you, Sennacherib, and your armies. There's going to be an accounting. And there at the, the second half of verse 28, he tells him, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth, and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. We can see from history, and the, this is something that the Assyrians would do to those they captured, that they would put a hook in their nose, a bit in their mouth, 
they would treat them like an animal as they led them away, humiliating them. And the God of Israel, the Lord says, I've seen this. I've seen the way that you have treated image bearers. I'm going to mock you and humiliate you. It is good to know that the atrocities that occur in human history are not beyond the sight of our God. He doesn't miss one of them. Whether it be at the global stage or whether it be in the darkness and privacy somewhere where no one sees it, you can be sure that God sees every evil that is committed. And every evil that is committed, that is not repented of, the Lord will repay. He will have true, righteous, holy vengeance against those who harm, humiliate others. Those who commit great sin against others there will be an accounting. He sees it all. Sennacherib, we're not certain if, if this message was delivered to him at this point, but if he was to hear the words addressed to him through the prophet Isaiah, what should have been his response? It should have been one of immediate humility that he thinks of all the trophies and spoils of, of war that he has accounted to himself and has said, this is, this is proof that I am godlike. He should have immediately been driven into the dust. His arrogance squashed. That's the importance of the doctrine of God's decree. Not just for those who reject him, but for, for God's people, isn't it? that the Bible teaches predestination and the work that it does in you and I is that it humbles us. That there is nothing that any of us could ever boast of. Anything good accomplished by our hands is a gift from God. Any faith, anything righteous, Salvation itself is all truly a gift. So take that from this lesson that there is no place for arrogance in the Reformed believer or any believer. That having a theology that embraces the whole counsel of God leaves us in a place of humble reliance, confidence in this God. Now we need to finish the final report. So verses 35 through 37. Here is how the siege ends. Now what's fascinating is that the, the, the histories that have come down to us from uh, Assyria and at this time, it talks about all the exploits that 
Sennacherib led his armies to in Judah, and then it leads us up to the point where I mentioned earlier that he, he says, I got King Hezekiah like a bird in the cage. And then there's a gap in their own history records because arrogant kings like this don't record their defeats. It's all of a sudden he's at the, the, the walls of Jerusalem and then the, the record picks up and he's back in Nineveh. And what happened? This is what has happened in verse 35. And that night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. Here is one of the greatest deliverances in all of Scripture. This is Passover caliber deliverance to where that the 10th plague that God sends upon Egypt and Pharaoh in the book of Exodus is the angel of the Lord killing the firstborn of all the Egyptians. And it opens a mighty exit for God's people in what was before an impossible situation. It is similar to Goliath standing out mocking the God of Israel and then God mocking him with a shepherd boy and a sling and a stone. It is a great and mighty deliverance. Now it's interesting that there is a play on words here in, in our, our passage. That God says, Sennacherib, your sin is that your messenger came and mocked me and reviled me. And so the word for angel, angel means messenger. And so God sends his messenger into the camp of the Assyrians as a stealth assassin who destroys 185,000 of their of their troops in one night. It is severe and quick. And of course they flee. But Sennacherib survives because that's what it said. It said that he would be sent back and he goes back to Nineveh. There in verse 36 it says that he departed and went home. Now 36 then basically covers 20 years of history. Just right there. They, they left around 701 B.C. or so, and then around 681, verse 37 happens. God is so just. He gave Sennacherib 20 years to think about this. 20 years to repent and to bow the knee but it's not of Sennacherib. He is a sinner in rebellion against the one true God. And even an event in which the messenger of the Lord, the angel of the Lord, destroys his troops in one night, it's not enough to get his attention. So God, in dealing with this man, takes him out in a humiliating way. His own sons the sword to him and end his life. There's greater judgment that then proceeds after that. There's a play on words in verse 35. The messenger of the Lord comes and destroys. And then here's another comparison in the text. Is that this happens 
while Sennacherib is supposedly worshiping his God, Nisroch. Now, this is the only place in all of human history we have a record of a God of the Assyrians named Nisroch. Why is that? Well, obviously this God amounted to nothing. And why would anyone preserve a record of this false God apart from the testimony of the scriptures to say that Sennacherib thought he was a God and trusted and worshipped his God and mocked the one true God and this was his end. The failed God of Sennacherib. There's a couple things here for us to leave with this evening. There's some constants for us. There's a reminder here. As we step back from this passage, we're reminded that those who trust in God find themselves in constant conflict with the forces of evil and this world. Once again, it is a reminder that you and I, as believers, should expect spiritual warfare and that the enemy of our soul will not relent. That he is seeking to steal, kill, and destroy always. So we are to be on guard, but we are not to be fearful. That if we are in a constant conflict, we have this constant comfort. That our God is the one who knows the beginning from the end. And that everything that occurs, occurs according to his decree and his predestining purposes. And that he has unchangeably demonstrated that he is for his people through the giving of his son. And so in the midst of our constant conflict, we have this constant comfort. Our God is the one who's in charge of all of history, your history, my history, global history. He is just, he is holy, he is righteous. He is kind to his people. He is severe with his enemies. Though it may seem like a delay, his justice will take place. This is your heavenly Father. You are in Christ. Tender, strong, almighty. The words to Sennacherib begins with, she despises you. She scorns you, the virgin daughter of Zion. She wags her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. The people of God will be exalted over their enemies. And so as his armies flee, it's the people of Jerusalem looking, standing, coming to the top of the walls. 
And now they're mocking their enemies because God is giving them the victory. But how is God's people described? The virgin daughter of Zion. It reminds them of their defenselessness, their need. They don't have it within themselves, but they, the daughter of the king. Dear believer, this is Heavenly Father. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we look to you We feel bombarded with attacks from the enemy as we feel the pressure of the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life as we recognize that there are demonic influences, as we battle the remaining corruption and presence of sin in our life. We look to you for our help and our deliverance, knowing that you are mighty to save, knowing that your grace is is sufficient that your power is made perfect in our weakness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.